Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. We're a show that's dedicated to answering your questions about media and virtual production, as well as the technology that enables it and enables our productions. If you'd like to ask us a question, you can be the producer of the show and guide uh, the topics that we discuss. Go to officehours.global and sign up for Makana, our question and answer service, so that you can ask us the questions that'll guide our discussion today. Um, Usually the first hour, we'll talk about uh, your questions in, uh, in our general question and answer session. And then we'll have a special topic uh, afterwards for our second hour during the week. On Saturday, though, we have our education hour. So we're looking forward to that. So hang around for our education. Mitchell, what do we have today? Morning, Josh. Our first question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Thanks, Paul. On a Mac M1 Mini, can you stack the Satechi hub with the Excelfi USB-C hub and an OWC mini stack STX and make a stack hack? Go ahead, Nigel. So a bit like this in Jurassic Park, the answer is not can you, but should you. Uh, I suspect you can stack them. You can probably put them very high. I don't know how good they are. I don't know how much uh, circulation of air you'll get uh, with them. Uh, particularly, it depends which models you've got and how you use them. Um, I think if you if you want to build um, something like that, I think get it in a rack, get it properly ventilated, make sure you've got enough clean air around it. I think the other interesting question for us is, you know, at least I, for me is, I'm wondering whether the next generation Mac Mini will be the same shape and size. Will it be the same height? Will it be a different width and length? And so I would be tempted until I know that, not to start doing anything and buying uh, add-on units that define the size of the footprint. Good, Mitchell. Uh, Nigel is spot on. I have a Satechi, and I'll show it to you. And uh, you can you can stack it if you must. There it is. Uh, I keep it underneath my desk in a little uh, metal container here. And uh, speaking of uh, keeping it cool, there is a fan off to the side. But... In my particular case, um, I don't have enough room in here to put another Satechi in here. And then the other thing is to keep in mind is, uh, sorry about the Dutch angle there, uh, is that there's only two uh, Thunderbolt ports on the M1 Mac Mini. So essentially, yeah, you could you could stack a lot of them, but you wouldn't be able to run a lot of them without more than two um, uh, Thunderbolt ports. Mark. So I have the... Uh the mini stack, the OWC mini stack STX, and it's a Thunderbolt uh, extension. So you would want to be careful of the order in which you run the daisy chain so you don't slow down the devices after the Thunderbolt. In other words, you wouldn't want to plug in something that's uh, USB-C first and then try and plug everything else into it. You'd want to have whatever USB-C connection is to be last in the chain. Fantastic. Thank you, panel. Let's go to our next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Ivan's testing Shadow, and there's a link to it, as a cloud-based Windows PC. And I'm so far impressed by its performance. Even over 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi with 50 milliseconds latency can be a useful tool for 3D Unity EU, uh, excuse me, UE Blender in a Mac-first workflow like mine. And um, Guy, do you think he's talking about the regular or the pro version of I think he's talking about the regular version, the $29 a month. It's funny because at CES uh, 2019 or 2020, I was in the Intel booth and this gentleman from Intel was talking about the future of computing and gaming and how that they were going to have these basically dumb terminals that you could rent and you would tap into the cloud. And uh, 
I was, it must've been 2019 because I was first thinking the guy was kind of crazy, but then I was like, I guess that makes sense. You rent, you rent a computer because back in the early nineties, we had our POS system that was running off of, uh, you know, these terminals and everybody had just like screens with keyboards, but then the horsepower was some big server rack. I don't even know where that thing was in the building, but this is now the new, the new normal. And, uh, I have it running. So here's the premium version. So the premium version jumps you up to about 40 dollars a month um the equivalent uh from so it's an extra 14.99 a month and you go jump up to an amd epic uh 75 43 cpu with four cores eight threads 16 gigs of ram and then it's the equivalent of an nvidia rtx 3070 so if you if douglas if you want to use um unity and unreal blender uh and play with those on the Mac on this virtual machine, you might want to look at it. I think they've opened it up to everybody now, but I jumped on the beta early. So like this is um, Livestream Studio running on my Mac Mini M1. Uh, and then that's, that's uh, let me see if I can pull the specs up here. Here's the specs of that machine. So this is a Shadow PC Premium, and you can see that it says that it's got four cores, eight logical cores, uh, 16 gigs. The crazy thing is, uh, for some people that may not have a lot of uh, bandwidth, you know, I'm I'm pumping. This is a, a server shadowed cloud computing. You can see right here. There's the IP address. You can see that I'm getting a 983 down, which is actually faster than what I'm getting here at my house. So, uh, and I'm 105 up is what I'm getting. I'm I'm doing 100 100 fibers symmetrical here at home. So if I need to pass some files around and that. Uh, uh, I don't want them to touch my home machine. I could just fire up my my shadow PC and uh, toss files around. If I need to do a quick edit, I can edit it up in the cloud and then kick it back around. So it's kind of interesting to be able to run apps, you know, sophisticated apps like Livestream Studio. Uh, the other thing that I was running on here is SRT mini server. So I could turn SRT into NDI and bring it into Livestream Studio or into vMix up, up in the cloud with the shadow PC. So it's it's like having a, you know, $1,500 PC for... Uh, uh, less than $50 a month if you connect it to a fast connection. So even if you're out on cellular out in the field, you know, you could be putting graphics. So you could be ingesting, throwing a graphic over the top. Like let's say it's a high school football game. You could, and you only got one camera, you can be feeding that in, having announcers come in from home, cutting that and putting graphics, uh, lower thirds and things like that, uh, all in the cloud for less than 50 bucks a month. So pretty incredible what you can do when you start to think of uh, you know the future of of this uh, type of computing up in the cloud. It's cool stuff. Yeah, it's fantastic. It looks like you've made good use of that guy. I'm um, question about the networking. Of course, the um, base model is a bit restricted as far as opening ports. Have you found that to be different with the Pro? Uh, it's the same. You can open up ports. So that's why something like uh, SRT mini server, it does this proxy thing where you're able to get around having to open up individual ports. So that's the downside as opposed to, uh, I'm a big AWS user and with AWS, I can totally granular control every single port, every little nuance of that, but that's, that's AWS. And now the difference is I could leave this machine running. Well, Sh Shadow, if you don't do anything for an extended period of time, they can down your machine. So you're, you know, for 50 bucks, there's some people that won't use it all the time. So they're counting on people not, you know, leaving it on 24 seven and hogging up all the bandwidth and computing power because it's, it's basically a shared machine. With AWS, you're guaranteed that machine, you're guaranteed the bandwidth, but you're also paying for it. So you're paying for uh, not ingress, but egress data. So if you're, 
if you're streaming something 24 seven, you're going to be paying for it. So AWS is much more expensive. It's about a buck 50 an hour for the same equivalent, maybe a buck for, or 75 cents for about the same equivalent machine, because for a buck 50, you can get a G4DN 8X, which has way more RAM, 128 gigs of RAM. Um, It's just a way beefier machine. I don't remember how many cores and what the exact speed is, but you can look it up online. So, but it, I know Douglas had some serious concerns about learning AWS and having, you know, those overage charges because those you know, those of us that have done AWS long enough, we've gotten bit with the the huge three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar bills for leaving something on, and uh, it's it's not fun to open up your your statement and see like, hey, get got got to hit again. So it's a fun place to play if you have a a, a Mac and want to get into a PC but don't want to commit to buying. Uh, Shadows Shadows really cool. Yeah, and I see that they have it in the uh, GPU that I had on my Shadow PC was in fact an NVIDIA. Um, now they're saying it's an NVIDIA equivalent is what they're guaranteeing, which is the horsepower, I imagine. But I wonder if you had a task that required um, you know, CUDA or something specifically NVIDIA, if they're going to always give you an NVIDIA branded or if there's an AMD, they might throw you for the equivalent. That might be interesting to know. So far, everyone I've talked to has had actual NVIDIA uh, hardware as well. And uh, you said, Guy, that you were able to get around the ingest by the proxy that um, SRT mini server has that you didn't have to worry yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. So I guess well, another... Still, it might be adding some some hops there, but I don't think it is because I think with SRT, it's basically acting like a... It's not a turn server, but there's a... Through the proxy... Once this uh, the uh, the connection's established, I don't believe any data further is having to bounce somewhere else. So uh, I haven't seen an added latency, but I'd imagine, yeah, I'm not sure exactly how that works with the how it gets around it. There's there's some tech details in there, but I found that it works. So SRT mini server again will allow you to take SRT, convert it to NDI, and then NDI is what Livestream Studio and VMix will see, um, and that way you can get it. Well. VMix would natively see SRT, so you wouldn't even need SRT mini server. I, I just like using it because you could throw 12 feeds in, and uh, usually what I'll do is I'll run SRT mini server on a different instance. So that's the benefit of AWS is that we can divide up tasks. So we could have two machines. Uh, you can't do that with Shadow. So with with AWS, we'll, we'll do three or four for a show, and that way one machine's running SRT mini server, ingesting the feeds, and if somebody attacked that machine, it would be fine. Uh, the the cutting the show machine would be fine, but generally we try to keep our machine that's cutting the show even off the internet. It could just sit there with no internet connection whatsoever, and all the NDI feeds are exposed to the internet, but they're coming in. So if somebody, like if you're broad, if you're a broadcaster, you don't want your your show you know in danger, especially if you're got some sensitive stuff up. Um, you don't want people being able to get to that machine. Yeah, that definitely still the advantage of the cloud is scalability, you know, having all of that at higher as well as, um, you know, extensibility. Um, the guy originally, um, not too long ago, you had a, um, a little lab with the SRT mini server. Did you use an AWS instance when we were yeah, doing that? that? Was- yeah, that was definitely AWS. So we fired that one up uh, in my VPC, and then yeah, we we're letting everybody go direct. So that was that was uh, not running SRT mini. Well, no, we did run SRT mini server, but that just because because we have the public IP, we could just uh, as easily have done vMix straight in. And I'll do that in, in our Facebook SRT uh, group. 
I'll frequently throw up the nine up Brady Bunch style and just put the ports and just be like, here's the IP address, shoot it over to this port. And you can see, you know, through like your phone running lyrics that you're indeed sending SRT. So it's it's a fun group to be able to experiment and see, you know, what does it look like and how fast is it? What's the latency? So it's it's SRT is the future. I mean, especially some of these bigger cameras that are starting to put SRT right in it. So that, I mean, if you, it kind of boggles the mind to think about SRT bonded in the field, being able to shoot it up to one of these shadow PCs or AWS, somebody's adding commentary, you're sucking somebody in from Zoom, you know, they're in their garage, but they're able to add all this, you know, critical information to you know, an event and it's a show. So, I mean, the futures, it's exciting, especially when you think about venues, uh, live control so that they were the biggest live event producer in the world and just looking at their model. I know it's a lot of churches, but you look at the venues, you said that they're doing jazz clubs and things like that. It's like, when do we get SRT cameras in every venue and you're just pulling them in? It's just a feed. You're just pulling it in and it's sub-second latency. So, I mean, that's good enough, you know, especially if you're cutting in and they're coming, if you could sync them from multiple places, it's pretty amazing stuff. So it's indeed the future. Yeah, absolutely. So if you you know, don't want to you have a fixed bill and don't want to worry about being scared or, or getting shocked and getting your feet wet to some cloud. The shadow is definitely a good uh, way to jump into it. In fact, they even have their own, you know, um, home built RDP uh, into their, into their uh, system. Guy, do you use that or are you parsec into your, your, yeah, I'm, I'm using their RDP. So I haven't tried to parsec into it, but yeah, you can, if I jump back over to it, you can see this is just their app. And so behind, you know, you can see the typical Mac, you know, in the corner, you can tell that I'm on, on a Mac. You can see my Mac stuff up top, but then, yeah, this is inside. And then when you hit, when you want to take it full screen, uh, you can press that keyboard shortcut and it'll, it'll take it full screen. Um, or you can press that. And it's just like, it's so weird to be like, wow, my Mac mini M1 now fully looks like a PC. It, it's it's kind of a different world. <laughs> what is this sorcery? And, and I think yep. they are, um, they also have a USB tunnel uh, available to where you can connect some peripheral devices. I haven't tried that too much, but I know that um, mostly connecting like, a, I don't know if they talked about a headset or something else you can, you can connect to your local machine. Yeah, I haven't tried that either. I haven't tried the USB stuff. But um, pretty interesting. So yeah, with uh, without a whole lot of skin in the game and to have a constant bill, um, that's a, a good way to at least get uh, exposed to doing things, that working with equipment that's not sitting in front of you. All right, let's go to our next sure, question, sure. Mitchell. Uh, from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Thanks, Mickey, for the countless hours of help last night and this morning. Does the panel have any idea how I might recover my virtual camera extensions that are missing from M1 Mac Mini? All right. Guy? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how, but I just wanted to comment on how impressed I was with everybody digging in and trying to help Tony last night. I mean, I, I have at my foot right now, I haven't plugged it in, but I was almost going to duplicate Tony's exact chain. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty deep when you got a gang of people that'll be like, okay, you got a phone going into an ATEM. All right, let me go get the ATEM, plug that in. Then from the ATEM, he was going, he wanted to figure out video pencil to be able to telestrate with his iPad. Uh, 
And then we were using, there's a new little app from the developer, Michael, uh, developed a little app that you run on your Mac mini or Mac, whatever you have. And, uh, it'll, it'll take that feed and bridge it together. Your, your video pencil, I think it's, it's NDIing the, uh, alpha channel. And that way you can, you can see what you're doing and it kicks it out and you can use it as a USB input into zoom. So it was an interesting challenge and I was able to get it to work on my machine. So I know that it works. But so there's something up with Tony's machine. And so Mickey was in, um, we had Peter Sargent jumping in and we're all trying to figure this out, but we know that it'll work because, you know, I'm here with my machine up in the Northwest and I just duplicated what he was doing almost pound for pound. And so uh, it's just Mickey and I were trying to figure out why his extensions aren't there. So I don't know where they're at, but I just wanted to comment on the fact that, you know, a bunch of us are in there trying to lend a hand and how cool of a community this is to be able to, you know, do that when somebody's in Atlanta, somebody's in the Philippines, somebody's in Seattle, and we're all like working together going, all right, you know, this is kind of beta software, <laughs> but let's, because uh, we, Tony and I were in the beta of it and there's still requests going on and uh, things getting changed. So like that little app came out of necessity because people had issues and now we're seeing uh, that people still have issues, <laughs> but we'll figure it out. Tony, we'll, we'll work on a little bit more in after hours and we'll get you dialed in. And I think it's, it's, of course it's for sale. And I think at the, um, the break price has ended for the video pencil, but still in still in beta. It's still beta software. There's beta versions that we're on, that Tony and I are on. So there's additional ah. features that are going to be rolled out, uh, but we're we're currently both using the beta version of video pencil that will have more features. Okay, yeah. So developers, you have a great community. They'll find your bugs and we'll work through issues. So hit us up, and we'll uh, we'll we'll help you out with your development. Let's go to our next question. From Douglas Carmichael, during the 1970s to 1980s, UK broadcasters offered a tele-software service that transmitted software for the PCs of the day via the Teletext network. Could you see a reworked version of that concept, a cloud-based desktop on TV selling today? Dave. Well, I'm not deeply knowledgeable about the UK system, but I can say here in Canada there was widespread use of a teletext over television channels by the cable companies. And I was working in cable at the time, so I was watching this develop. There were many experiments in delivering a, what was called a NAPLIPS system, and I can't remember what those six letters were standing for, across the whole country. And uh, many of the capabilities were soon very limited, and attempts to make it a graphical experience overloaded the delivery method. So because televisions didn't have on-board rendering capabilities, each graphic had to be built in layers. And when you wanted to put an ad up with a company logo or a product image, it took almost a minute to assemble that frame. Uh, it was delivered to TVs on the vertical interval. And in analog TVs, there's the two scans, and then there's a vertical interval for the next two scans. And that capacity was pretty limited. It was interesting that you could deliver this using a very small bandwidth inside an already delivered over-the-air signal. Uh, and that was a really interesting innovation, and its potential was looked at for all kinds of other things, such as emergency messages and that sort of stuff. But uh, when you wanted to use it as an information delivery system, it bogged down. And uh, you could measure the assembly of a frame in minutes rather than milliseconds. Uh, the only uh, other advantage it had was that it was injected into that signal path and could be decoded at every cable box. And it didn't have to load any software onto the TV. So it didn't matter what TV you plugged into it or what capacity it had. This would display on certain channels 
that we're taking that and decoding it on the box, the cable box in your house. So um, that's probably the reason why it never caught on. And the internet itself, with its ever-increasing bandwidth and now with high speed everywhere, uh, you'd never really get anybody to go back to this system. I don't. Yeah, so as I as I remember it, um, the BBC at least used to, ITV had its independent television, had its own system, used to use the top layers lines that were never scanned to send data down. The BBC service was known as CFAX. And it, it was a, a it was a billboard type system that would flash and you could get news and information. And there were about 100 pages, I don't remember what it was. And then when the BBC launched the BBC Micro, which, by the way, we now call ARM, because that's, I believe, where that technology came from. They allowed you to download programs through the same system onto your BBC Micro. And at least that's how I remember it. And I would tell you in those days, you know, uh, 10K of stuff was a lot. In today's world, 10K wouldn't write the, you know, light the right-hand side of your screen up. And we're, we're, we're moving gigabytes and megabytes of code around. And so I think we've really replaced that one-way broadcast system with a thing called the internet. And I think if you think about things like GitHub and other things like that, they're, they're moving uh, terabytes of data every day and directly, and you can call and recover it. And I think that's probably the replacement. But in the early days, those people who had the BBC micros, there really wasn't a good way to distribute from the BBC educational programs. And they were so small, they used that system. Dave? Well, it occurred to me while Nadja was talking that there's even a better potential with digital TVs because they, they, the vertical interval isn't necessarily the place to put stuff. And you can have lots of streams going to a TV and then the TV just decides which one to switch to. So you could, in fact, deliver sort of PC software to a TV. Um, and then, as, as he describes, have games that kids could play and stuff that could be on uh, – a remote control could actually operate the, the interface. And the potential's there. But when you have something like the Apple TV and the Roku with, that are dedicated boxes for this sort of thing, it adds even more power to the process. So, yeah, maybe there's some potential for this kind of delivery system for the modern uh, Internet-connected TVs and the, um, the streaming services. And maybe there's a, there's a place that returns yeah, what, what was old becomes new again, usually in a different form and usually cheaper. Let's go to our next question. Next question in from Paul Prizkowski in Gainesville, Florida. Is anyone familiar with a low-budget SDI to analog converter? I have a rack mount dual monitor set up with BNC analog inputs, an older purchase I can't return but hopeful to be able to use. Guy. Yeah, I don't know if you really want to throw good money after bad. You might want to just look at replacing that monitor, getting getting rid of it, because the money that you can throw in, let's say, for instance, you go with a, an AJA device, that's going to be 399 bucks. The one that uh, used to cost that much, but doesn't cost that much anymore, whoops, wrong screen, uh, is this one, the SDI to analog uh, adapter, which is 215 bucks. So that's the cheapest one that I know of that's worthwhile. So I would look at getting that SDI to analog box if you want to continue using that uh, monitor, but it's going to be soft. I mean, that's the other thing is digital to digital is clean. So if you want to go after the AJ, go after the AJ. But uh, if you can get rid of that monitor, I would look at, at selling it off and getting uh, something that is native SDI instead. Yeah, the 
you know, panels have become such a commodity these days, but um, understand the the willingness to try to try to make that work. But let's maybe look at it, look at a better solution. All right. Thanks, panel. Let's go to our next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. Are there any significant reasons for not updating to Mac OS Ventura? I don't hear much about incompatibility issues compared to previous releases. John. Just because you don't hear about compatibility issues doesn't mean you won't experience them yourself. Um, anytime you change your system, you're introducing risk. And I've unless there's something specific about Ventura that you need for your work, you might consider holding off longer. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I think Alex is uh, counseled that February is the time to do that. But uh, I uh, was bored, and I figured I'd give it a shot. And uh, I didn't do it right away, never update to the latest version right away, and never have it set to automatically update. Um, uh, the only things that I noticed uh, when I did it uh, going to Venture was that it blew out my uh, um, uh, my links to my Adobe uh, stuff. But other than that, it's worked fine. So I'm not, I have no issues, but your results may vary. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, this is one of the times having multiple machines is an advantage because my beta machine went at first. So I have a machine I, I run beta stuff on that I isolate from the rest of the system. So I, I put it on, I put the beta on, I've been running it. My big question is how would uh, how would the Dante stuff work? And so far it's working for me. But but I would uh, I would never trailblaze with my production machine. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Go ahead, Dave. Well, um, I've had it for a little while now, and I'm not seeing any major problems. The suspicion I have for incompatibilities rests with some of the Electron apps that I'm using, and sometimes those act funny or slow down. So I'd be a little cautious about what the upgrade path is for some of these developers in the Electron environment. Uh, but I think all the other developers that I buy my stuff from got a lead time before Ventura to be able to update. And I think all my software updated to anticipate Ventura. So the transition for me was pretty easy. Okay, Mitchell. My main editing system is a 2015 Mac Pro. It said, no, thank you. I cannot do it. Yeah, I know there are some really interesting features that uh, Ventura offers, and I have not yet updated. My biggest reason that I might do so Little notification in the bottom tray that keeps telling me an update. That's about it. But go to our next question. Paul Przykowski from Gainesville, Florida. I'm a PC guy. Got my first M1 this year for Zoom ISO and recently was given an older Mac Mini. How are you using older Mac Minis in your workflows? Go ahead, Mark. So we've taken our oldest Mac Mini, a 2012, out of the workflow and put it in the lobby of the radio station, and it just shows the web pages as they flicker through the news and weather. Nigel? Yeah, I think that's a great use. The other thing I do with my old Mac Mini is I use it to be my interface into Zoom. So when I, on particularly on office hours, that's my one device that I send everything to that just manages the Zoom connection. Nice. Fantastic. And so not really much of a network limitation on that, I suppose. Still, still a lot of uses for these older ones. And you can use them for Zoom OSC. Um, not recommended for Zoom ISO, though. Let's go to our next question. 
From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts, is there a setting or way to tell Mukana to give me the full view instead of the limited mobile view? Go ahead, John. There is a whole list of commands that you can use in Mukana. I believe specifically the one you're looking for is slash display mode, all one word. Uh, but I'm sure someone can put that in the chat. And I'm looking for it. There's another link for the embedded. So here's what you do. You open up the email that comes to you every day, and you'll see two links. One of them is for the embedded view, which is the full, and the second one is for the mobile view that you're using. So click on the one for the full view. It's called with the embed, and uh, there you go. You have your full view. Let's go to our next question. And it's Douglas Carmichael again asking uh, the YouTube channel of VR Sessions. There's a link to it there. Showcases artists performing in a 360-degree format. What sort of camera and production pipeline would you use for 360-degree VR content? Fascinating. And I didn't get a chance to look at the uh, content for that particular YouTube, but um, what I've seen in recent uh, months is that the sensors on these 3D cameras are getting larger. We're seeing them in one inch size, which is fantastic. Um, typically you have uh, a pair of the sensors that have really wide angle lenses. And the dynamic range was always, uh, always an issue. They've used some software to try and get around that by doing multiple sampling. But uh, some of the, the newer ones, I think the, um, what, the 361 had a uh, one inch sensor. That's one that I'd be interested in taking a look at. But um, let's go to our next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, what do you know about OpenAI? When will it be a thing on our desktops and devices? Hi, Joel. What I know is I started playing with it yesterday. We have a sort of office hours equivalent for the team at work where we talk about marketing things. So we started asking it marketing questions yesterday, and we were deeply disturbed in the quality of the answers we got back. And, and particularly one thing that we had all been struggling of working out how to say, we asked that question and we got back an answer. Too wordy, uh, you know, but it was really a very well-structured sort through stuff. I also saw something on TechCrunch today, a headline that says, has chat GPT become a virus that has been released into the wild? And, and if you've really not played with it, it's a really interesting tool. And I, I think it could signal the end of man as we know it. <laughs> Fantastic. You heard it here first. Go ahead, John. Yeah, OpenAI is a company that makes various different uh, artificial intelligence-driven products. The most recent one is that chat GPT. And I think conversational AI, especially text-based AI for chat, is going to be a huge deal in the customer service space, um, especially having smarter chatbots that can help understand your intent when you're typing, typing chat in there is going to make a major, major difference to customer service organizations. Go ahead, John. I agree with everything that John just said. So Sam Altman is the CEO founder of Chat AI. Go, go look him up on YouTube, watch some of his clips. Uh, there's a great one with him and the CTO of Microsoft. Microsoft's an investor in, in OpenAI. They're working on they're working on GPT four. They've been working on it for five years, and so that it really is going to be outstanding. AI is taking over the world. Who remembers the metaverse? AI is 
really useful today. A lot of the copy that you're reading on Facebook, the marketing ads are already written with AI. This thing's been out for a couple of years already. Version two was out two years ago. Um, and so a lot of your stuff is is on AI with the script with AI. AI's taken over the world. I'm gonna become a pet for the AI overlords. <laughs> um it, you know it's it, it's an interesting um, bit of dilemma um we often have pre-scripted text you know canned responses and we kind of know uh sorry i'm busy you know try call me later uh maybe try texting uh but then of course there are bots and we generally uh assume that they're not uh, supposed to be talking to us but you know if we if these uh bots and ai tend to get even more and more convincing Maybe we'll have to introduce something like, I don't know, a blue check mark for real humans. I don't know. Just a thought. Uh, Dave? Well, that was my thought immediately, is we had this whole deep fake issue where you might have to mark anything that was a deep fake and make sure that you knew the difference between what Dave is saying and what Dave's deep fake says. Um, and even the uh, analysis of these things and the forensic kind of analysis of images, signals, and audio, just to make sure that we know what's real. And I think we're just going to have to get better at um, either pattern recognition or some sort of authentication method just in our own brains, where if something doesn't feel right, then it must be an AI. And if you're reading something that sounds a bit more like Shakespeare than it should about cricket, well, then, you know, you're reading an AI. But if you really read cricket stuff, it has its own nomenclature and its own patterns and its own uh, inside. Uh, uh, references. And so I don't, I mean, I expect maybe AI might become interested in cricket, but for the meantime, it's playing in a field that's quite easy to do marketing, uh, news rewriting, and that sort of thing. And I've got no problem there because I have my own sources rather than the AI sort of generic sources. So I'm thinking it's a, it's a cultural and social uh, learning process that we get through. And then we find a way to determine either legally uh, we have a little, you know, like you say, blue check that says this is authentic, or we just personally choose channels that that declare that they're not going to let AI write their stuff, show their videos, or or make their decisions. Go ahead, Nigel. There was a movie uh, called The Demolition Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Wesley Snipes and Sandra Bullock, and Sandra Bullock was answering the phone in these. A future police station or the police station in the future. And as part of the message, she says, if you'd like to talk to a real human, please press five. Nice. And then, you know, I would say at that point, probably you'd want, you'd not want to, probably not, uh, not want to press five in that instance. Um, I hope that the, the, um, bot tests don't get too difficult because on a bad day, I might fail a Turing test. Let's go to our next question. Next question in from Hershey Trevetti in Daytona Beach, Florida. And here in our panel, newer cameras mentioned streaming capable. What does that workflow look like? For example, a Sony ZV-E10 or other proper cameras? Mitchell. Um, I happen to have one of those right here. It's, this is a Sony ZV-E10 with an external lens that I put on it. Uh, Sony is getting smart. They're doing something very interesting um, their, I guess their first iteration of what we might call web-capable, what they call vlog or vlogging uh, cameras, is their ZVE, or, yeah, Z1. Uh, the ZVE10 is the second iteration of that camera. And what they're doing is that they're placing um, USB connections on them, 
right there. You can probably see it's a micro USB. Um, and it doesn't stream directly from this camera, although there are cameras out there that can do that. But it just makes it easier to hook it into a Zoom uh, environment because you don't have to go through uh, an ATEM uh, to, in order to get a uh, stream going. You just use your USB connection and the UVC um, allows that to happen. So I think this is uh, more and more the thing with any new cameras that are coming out is to have that USB on there, which allows it to uh, digitize the, uh, the video coming out, audio video, and um, allow it to plug into your Zoom pretty easily or any, anything else for that matter. Yeah, I'm not sure what that categorization might be, Harshid, but um, stream capable seems to be a bit of a wide, you know, gamut as to what they're actually talking about. Um, Mitchell alluded to the ease of streaming, so something that you could simply plug into a computer and then have an output signal. Um, now, we're used to a 1080p signal here, and one caveat you might want to keep in mind is that a lot of those um, cameras, they do have the capability to plug in USB to provide um, the video without a capture card, which is convenient, um, but the processing um, is a bit intense on the, to it, so it does limit the resolution. Um, I think the ones that we looked at at Sony limits the resolution, the outgoing resolution to 576p for it max. Now, if you're in a typical vanilla Zoom meeting that only has 360p, should be fine. Uh, but if you're if you're around with something with 720p or 1080p, you might notice the difference in the camera being the weak link. But it is but it is convenient. Uh, go ahead, guy. Yeah, I guess on some of the lower end cameras, I haven't looked at uh, the exact specs of what format that they're streaming and to see how much of a load that they're putting on that process. That's probably the thing is that a lot of these uh, formats, if you want 1080, they're going to take up you know some horsepower and require just a, a bit more buck. So for the uh, the higher end stuff, like I, the first ones that I saw a couple of years ago at NAB were the JVC line that started doing uh, SRT and I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is going to be a thing. And it never like took off, took off. Like I see them at some college universities, they're using them out in the field because there, there is an inherent latency, like some of the Teradex or some of the other wireless, you know, uh, uh, if, if you want instant zero delay, no latency, then Teradex bolts and things like that are still the way to go. But it, yeah, seeing like uh, we've got the UE150, you know, that's a $10,000 um camera that's a ptz high-end with a one inch chip in it and that'll do srt natively so that's what i was talking about earlier where that some of these cameras that are uh, able to produce a stream if they can do srt then you're getting sub-second latency whereas a lot of the other devices are rtmp or rtsp and so that's more like a security camera type thing where it, it takes a while for it to get there it can be you know a couple seconds to be able to get that image and those are common in, in households like security systems where you're looking at an image but it's it's a little bit delayed and, and of course it's not very high quality so it just depends on how much you're paying or how old the technology is versus how new it is this stuff's changing so fast like even the uh the uh wise cameras the quality of those things is insane and i think that's rtsp and uh it's it's pretty man it's RTSP, so it's it's not going to be like SRT as far as fast, but uh, it's cheap, 35 40 bucks for a camera, I think, John. Don't you have a couple of those, Proto? A couple of those uh, wise cams? Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't. I have uh, I have Nest. Uh, Paul Paul uh, Wallace is the is the wise cam guy. Gotcha. Nice. I was thinking about that, too. Um, so if you, we were doing something like what we did for Cinegear and NAB, if we had... Uh, an SRT capable 
camera that would change our our streaming gear and our rigs some of our mobile rigs might be uh, or, or a box you know that we use uh Jonas and Tucker and Greg we uh, we all own Epifan nanos and those will push up a uh, proper SRT feed but there, there's cheaper boxes. I mean, I think you were looking at some, Josh, weren't you, that were like less than $200 off of Amazon? Did you ever buy one of those to see if it works? I didn't. Yeah, you kind of scared me with the interface. <laughs> yeah, I have one that, yeah, I still can't get it to work right. So, I mean, that's that's the thing is like, you kind of get what you pay for with the the name brand companies. You know, the, the interfaces are really slick, especially the the Epifan Nano. If you get the cloud uh, control one, you could, you could send those devices out in the field and then you can control them remotely. So if you have a church or a school and you have an auditorium or a you know, house of worship uh, pedestal where you want to just point that camera, well, actually what I want to do is I want to talk some of these guys into putting PTZ control in the hardware. So now you can have any camera and then control the PTZ. It'll just find it because I know you can do it. It's It's just a matter of implementing it. But that would be cool to be able to use any PTZ camera via SRT so you can have old technology because we have older PTZs at our church but it'd be cool to be able to, to do that so and then there's I found a $500 uh, SRT bonding camera so that's also something that's going to be the future I'll put a link to it it's by Mind Media is the name of the company they've been trying to get me to sell it but it's like it's around 600 bucks and you could put two sim cards in it and it'll bond uh, and they, they're talking about it free, free bonding for the first year. And then it's like 50 cents a gig or something like that for, so that might be a thing. Like we might be seeing cameras in, in the next year that are from major manufacturers that have two SIMs plus the ability to Wi-Fi plus Ethernet. So USB-C to Ethernet port. So four connectors on the camera body, SRT up fast, long lens zoom. It'll, it, it, it's happening. You'll see it. That's that's amazing. There's what you what you'd call a stream capable camera, and I I wonder if it gets to the point where they're the uh, printers and razor and blades model where you get the camera for free, you just pay for the data. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's uh, it's true. Uh, the streaming capable camera can be any camera that puts HDMI out can be streaming capable if you throw one of these uh, HDMI encoders on it takes uh, HDMI in, and it comes out up here in a USB connection. And as you see, I haven't used it yet because uh, Josh was correct. Uh, he was literally right there when I plugged my Sony FX3, my beautiful Sony camera, into the net via USB. And it, he said, well, uh, did you check the uh, uh, the uh, frame rate and the uh, aspect ratio and all that stuff? And, yep, it was only, what, 570? So I've given up on that particular project. So it is technically... Uh, streaming capable, but it's not what I want it to be. I want it to be a 1080i. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we're kind of spoiled too with the 1080p zoom meetings. A lot of people in their traditional ones wouldn't, wouldn't have even noticed uh, the difference. So if, if that's your jam, you just got to know what your destination, you know, what your deliverables need to be. All right, Harshid, hope we gave you some things to think about. Let's go to our next question. James Babbitt in San Diego, California, asked, does anyone on the panel have a review of the 10.2-inch Amazon Kindle Scribe for reading with e-link, e-ink, and taking notes with a pen? John. I've not seen the Amazon version, but I do have the Remarkable 2, and you can easily draw on it. And it has an eraser on the other end, 
unlike some Apple devices, which is really nice. You just flip it over and erase what you need. Uh, it has replaced my personal notebook, and I really like it. I've heard that the Amazon version is has some features that are missing, like it doesn't synchronize your markup from the device to your Kindle library, for example. I think Tech Meme Ride Home podcast recently had an episode where they discussed it. What do you use your um, uh, Scratchpad for, John? Uh, I take notes. <laughs> and like, for example, for my uh, one-on-ones with my employees, I typically write them in here instead of typing them on the computer. Nice. And um, what do you what do you do after you write them? Does that sync to um, any of your note services? Or I, I am not actually using it to sync at all. It is literally a replacement for a paper notepad. Nice. But you and can have multiple different notebooks in it and that sort of thing. Cool. I've seen some of those. I've been tempted. But uh, yeah, glad it's working out for you. Let's go to our next question. From Harshid Trivedi in Daytona Beach, Florida, and right here, my ears perked up when I heard about a new mute switch on the panel. What brand is it? Go ahead, Mark. So it is a Copal, and it is. I have a close-up of it. I'll go to that right now. And so it has a dynamic condenser as a, an option, and you can use the switch to push to talk or push to mute. But we heard a little bit of noise in the background this morning before the show, so I disconnected it and uh, am going back to the old mute button that you push on the screen. Oh, so that's how you heard about it then, Harshit. Okay, I get you now. David? Well, I'm uh, a new mute button user too. For the last six or eight months, I've been using the mute on Zoom. And uh, on the recommendation of Mitchell, I went and got a Rolls MS-111 mic switch. Uh, I set it to push to talk because that's sort of the way I learned talking on a mic uh, in radio and that. And um, I also did a little mod on it to dampen the metallic sound of the switch. So I, I did a little experiment there. I think it's working because nobody's complained about hearing it. Uh, and sometimes we've heard that the rolls has this sort of clanky sound uh, when people push the button. But... That's a thing. And I've also seen people put an LED uh, onto their rolls to indicate whether it's hot. So that's my new one. I'm interested. What was the mod? Oh, well, there was a picture on Discord earlier of someone put an LED. They drilled a hole and put an LED in and wired it into the system so that when your mic was hot, the light was coming on. Okay, nice. Mitchell? Yeah, one of the tricks on these uh, mechanical uh, mute buttons is that your uh, microphone, if it's a condenser microphone, it wants to see that 48-volt phantom power. So there might be some power that it's passing through. But it's it's pretty tricky because you just can't cut the connection physically uh, in order to mute it because when you turn it back on, the mic's going to have to power back up and there'll be attendant noise to go along with it. And if you looked at that um, switch that uh, Mark was showing, there's a little switch on the front of it that says dynamic and condenser. Um there is no um, if you're not if you're not using a condenser microphone, you obviously leave it a dynamic. There's no uh, voltage to be switching there, so that's the tricky part. And I think we were talking earlier uh, off uh, off camera uh, a little bit about um, that. Are they actually cutting the connection? Or are they muting or dimming the connection? And some of these will only dim down to a certain level albeit a very low level, but still uh, even on my uh, expensive uh, studio tech. Um, if I mute it and shout at the uh, at the microphone, you're going to hear just a tiny bit coming through. Mark, 
So we will play with this in after hours and see if it's generating noise, even though it's supposed to be muting. Uh, the one nice thing about it is it does have a light and it tells you when you're muting or however you set it up, whether you're muting or whether you're talking. I like that big red button. That's just cool. All right, next question. From Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, what is the recommended capture card to add to my setup in addition to my A10 Mini Pro? Go ahead, Nigel. Oh, sorry. Got caught up there. Nigel seems to be having a little difficulty. No worries. Uh, Guy. Yeah, there's a couple different models. Uh, a lot of popular ones are the, like the Cam Link from Elgato. Um, Atomus has the, the little uh, capture card. I think it's called a Connect. Um, I saw them on Black Friday for 39 bucks. So those would be decent. We have one on our in-house brand called a Riser. Uh, that's about 80 bucks. The nice thing about that one is it's got a loop out. So you can go HDMI in and then get it back out. So the, the other ones I mentioned don't have that. Um, then you can go all the way up to some of the, the more uh, expensive ones like the AJU tab. But just for simple, uh, the other one that Mitchell just uh, held up, the Condor Blue, I think that's about 40 bucks, uh, Mitchell. Was it? Yeah. So those are a couple options. Nice. Is that the riser one? Does it have a USB-C on it, guy? It it has USB C in, and then we include in the box USB C to uh, USB A and USB to USB C cables. And I will be doing a test. I actually have uh, like six of these things to test uh, with OmniScope to show you guys uh, what the difference is. With uh, Roland has a uncompressed version um, uh, USB to, so it was uh, was it. Uh, our friend up in BC who was, has the role and he was saying that uh, he was getting a better picture. So I just want to see if that's a tr how true that is. If we use a more expensive um, UVC uh, uncompressed device, because MJPEG seems to be the way that a lot of these manufacturers are bringing these in. So I, I bought a couple of the cheapest ones that you could get. I mean, they literally have no name brand on them. So I would just wanted to see like, all right, is a $20 one the same as an Elgato uh, for 40 50 60 70 dollars because we could help people like tony you know get their uh, cameras in or their phones in because he's he's just using a 10s uh iphone but he's taking the um hdmi out of it and using it as a camera and it looks good like he's been doing it for like a year with his filmic uh with the filmic pro app because uh, you can you can get a clean hdmi out with that app so having a cheap capture card i mean it's a great way to to get uh HD. I mean, some camera that's sitting in a drawer in your in your house. <laughs> Put it back to to work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that um, a lot of the nice capture cards um, only go to 1080p. So some of the cheap ones they can do 4K, and you can input. You know, sometimes your 4K output that's off of a screen, something like that, which is not too bad. Let's go to our next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, Artemis 1 will be back from the moon and arrive on Earth tomorrow. What time? Where will you watch it? Will you watch it alone or with others? Dave? Well, as a guy who watched all the Apollos, um, I'm not going to be watching this because there's nobody on it. I think the tension and the interest in survivability of the return is what kept me watching. Uh, sending real people to strange places is always something you want to track. Uh, they're adventurers and they're uh, explorers. Uh, 
the vehicle coming back is a you know it's going to be a challenge, and it'll, if it's a success, it'll it'll pave the way for putting people on it. But at the current time, uh, watching a a spent rocket come back uh, just for uh, data purposes uh, doesn't intrigue me on in in the time spent to watch them do it. Uh, but when they start sending real people up there and they start building a colony up there, uh, I'm going to be watching pretty closely. When the rockets start landing themselves too, that, that gets pretty interesting. Go ahead, Mitchell. I have often thought if it's worth stowing away on one of these unmanned rockets, um, maybe not such a great idea, but uh, contrary to what uh, Dave was saying, I'm going to, uh, in, in honor of the Apollo mission, I'm going to take out of mothballs my old black and white Zenith and sit down and watch it. Uh, hopefully, uh, I, I won't see uh, Walter Cronkite and Wally Sherrard talking because then I would be truly in some other zone. But um, I'm very curious about it. This is our first step back to the moon, and this is great. Arshid? Uh, we'll be uh, right here right now in after hours, right after the show, 12.40 Eastern time for me, 12.30 roughly. Uh, so probably with you guys and with my family. Uh, got bunch of phones these days and new ways to watch these things so come on by after hours we do have a fairly decent sized space contingent in this community let's go to our next question next question in from craig mcfarlane in boston massachusetts which of the last week or two's second hours did you learn more than expected for example worth a relook john there was three good episodes in the last, uh, I don't know, 10 day period or so. The the one on uh, polarity uh, in phase was was a really good episode. Um, the, the one that Felipe did was was also good. And then the the one that Bill did about the talking camera, I thought was was useful as well. Yeah, DaVinci Resolve on an iPad. Mitchell? Yeah, the polarity phase one was interesting. It blew up my brain. Um, I always thought that when I was flipping pin two and pin three on an XLR connector, changed the phase of the microphone, but no, it changes the polarity. So go figure. That was uh, a little lesson that learned from a 68 year old guy. That was fantastic. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I, I do question management on some days of the weekdays, and I was really looking forward to the polarity discussion on the audio on Wednesday, and uh, as a result of the questions being fast and furious, I wasn't able to listen as closely to what was being said. And so I'm planning on going back to that episode and rewatching it because, as a basically an audio guy myself, um, I, th as Mitchell says, I thought I knew some of what was going on, and I've done my own phase relationship experiments in my own audio work. And uh, I've had some success with some of these uh, strange configurations where you're solving some hum problem or something else. And I was kind of curious. Uh, so unfortunately, I wasn't able to pay attention to it as much. And uh, I'll do that on the second round. Absolutely. Don't forget about uh, we had a late arrival, our sound devices, folks from Garrick, Gary Isaacs and uh, sorry, Paul Isaacs and Gary Trenda uh, talking about their new uh, wireless uh, solution. Really interesting. Let's go to our final question. Final question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can Mitch clarify why the Sony ZV-E10 makes a better USB webcam than the ZV-1? Can't the ZV-1 stream to zoom over USB? Sorry, same question as Rashid, but want a little more detail. Go ahead, Mitchell. I, I, hopefully I wasn't making a comparison between the two. 
uh, as to which was a better uh, streamer. They probably essentially do the same thing. Uh, the main difference between the ZV-1, which was a predecessor to the ZV-E10, which is right here, is this is a Super 35 sensor. So it has a different sensor, and it also has a removable E-mount lens. So does that make it a better streamer? Maybe, maybe not, depending on what you're doing with it. It depends. Harshit? What was interesting, uh, recently I looked on uh, Sweetwater, and they have a to-be-announced ZVE10, uh, ZVE1 uh, second edition or something, or Gen 2 possibly. So between that and uh, the A7R5 uh, touting uh, streaming capabilities and all of the fun stuff there, and then uh, the ZVE10 already being what's out there right now as in Mitchell's hands. So just in comparison, trying to figure out what has what and if if this is where cameras are going, so to speak. And Guy mentioned a lot of great tips earlier. So thanks for the answers. Yeah, the, the new one that Harshi was mentioning is the ZVE1F uh, F for, I think, fixed lens. So it doesn't have the zoomable lens, but the Achilles heel for the um, ZVF1 was always that the, it was never wide enough for folks that wanted to you know, actually hold it like a vlogging camera. So the fixed lens doesn't doesn't zoom, but it has like a 20 millimeter uh, equivalent, I think, wide angle zoom. But um, that's it. That is the end of our first hour of questions. We uh, really appreciate all of the questions that you've asked us and the panel for answering our questions and providing us all of that commentary. And we also appreciate the back end that's makes our show happen each and every day. We'll see more about them and the people that uh, help make this show happen in our credits at the end of the show. But now we'll be transitioning over to our education hour. Uh, John, what do we have? Thanks, Josh. During our education hour today, our panel will have a special guest, John Carippo, author of Education Protocol Field Guides, books number one and two. He's also a Google certified educator as well as an Apple recognized educator, and he was a top influencer uh, for education. We'll talk about how you can use protocols to make your lesson plans more effective with less work, and we'll talk with him in five minutes. Welcome back. As instructors, we're always looking for tricks and trips, tips to make more effective teaching materials with less effort. Today, we have a special guest, John Carippo. He's the author of our uh, field guides books for education protocols number one and two. Let's welcome him as he shares some great ideas on how we can be more effective at lesson planning. It's a great opportunity to ask questions from an expert. So make sure producers to put any questions you have into our Mukana chat and we'll address them in just a few moments. John, would you like to introduce yourself and share a little bit about what education protocols are all about? Yes, good morning, everybody. Uh, dialing in from Yosemite National Park today. And I'm um, happy to share our life's work with you guys. I'm going to go ahead and get my screen share started, if that's okay. Um, mm -hmm. I guess probably the biggest thing about Edge of Protocols is really uh, this very important concept that, uh, you know, you're hearing a lot about teacher burnout. One of our biggest drivers is teaching better and working less. And so what's happening in education right now is we're working harder than ever. Teachers are trying every trick in the book to get kids engaged, motivated, and the bar is really high for academic success. And what's happening is it's turning it into an unsustainable career. But I started this journey in about 1999. I was looking at 1,500 papers to grade, and I said to myself, I don't want to do this <laughs> for 30 years. 
Uh, I love teaching. I love interacting with the kids. I love designing lessons. But that is not a sustainable system. And then here is kind of, if you want to take my hypothesis, this is uh, from a book called What Schools Could Be by Ted Dintersmith. And if you look at that, the bottom bar there, uh, that is educational um, results since 1970. And this is from NAEP, the National Assessment of Education Progress. And uh, if you haven't read What School Could Be by Dinter Smith, it's, it's a powerful book. Um, he traveled all through the United States talking with parents and teachers about the potential of school. And if you look really carefully here across the bottom, I'll use my little line tool. This is what we're getting. We're at 0% since 1970. And basically, when I read this chart, what I'm seeing is the kids that tend to score high tend to score high. The kids that tend to score low tend to score low. We're not getting any change. And the vertical line here, in case you can't read it, that is the cost of education. <laughs> so the cost is going through the roof. But in reading math and science, us compared to us, we're not getting better. And I love that chart because it's the best and clearest example of what I've seen about what I'm going to be talking about, which is we are working really hard at education, and yet we're not really changing lives. Kids that have tiger mom parents still do great, and kids that are poor still struggle. We're not changing the paradigm on that. And just for the record, I'm uh, 58 years old this year, and uh, in 1970, I was in first grade. And so... I like to take a parallel with cars. Imagine driving a 1970s car right now. You're going to miss your heated seats, your Bluetooth, your ABS brakes. You're going to miss the fact that it actually starts. <laughs> if anybody lived through 1970s cars like I did, um, imagine 1970s football. There's a lot of running and not much passing. Imagine 1970s food. So, you know, the world has moved on and education really hasn't. And I want to say I have so much respect for the group of folks that are joining me today. You guys feel free that if I say something that sounds blasphemous or you want to jump in, jump in. So I don't consider this like a keynote where I can be, you know, not interrupted. So and then if anything shows up in the chat, definitely let, let me know. So here's, Rest a, assured, here's a, we yeah. will interrupt oh, you. Yes, we good. will. I love it. I love it because I'm here for the convo. I'm not here for the lecture. Like, I'm going right, to throw some and, things out there, right? Yeah. So here's a, here's a manifestation of what I'm talking about. I get this text from a teacher. This is his AP class, you guys. This is his AP class. And look what he's got going right here. This is his AP class. His group is 71% passing. The state average is 54% passing. I know where he lives. It is not a high economic area. They're pretty middle of the road. It's like an agrarian community. You know, there's a few affluent kids. There's some immigrant type kids. They've got a little bit of everything. He is nearly 20 points ahead of the global and state average. But here's the real kicker if you haven't read it. Full Edge Protocols implementation continues to work with virtually zero take-home grading. So that's an AP class, you guys. And, and he's getting dramatic and powerful results. Here's another thing that I think is missing in the classroom right now. And this used to be present and no child left behind kind of drove what was left of it out of the building. And I miss it. And I'm going to tell you the scientific name for this, 
but I was going through Instagram one day and this popped up in my feed. The creative process. This is awesome. This is tricky. <laughs> this sucks. I suck. This might be okay. This is awesome. This is an innately human process that we deny kids when we just give them lecture after lecture and worksheet after worksheet. We are, we are shortcutting this process. And it's an innately human process, whether you're learning to brew beer or write your first book or cook a brisket. The first brisket, maybe we don't eat it all. Maybe half of it gets tossed. <laughs> that first book, maybe our professor says, okay, this is a good start, but you're going to want to try again. So when we cut that out of the classroom, in a lot of ways, we're dehumanizing the learning experience. I also have a very unique experience. Um, I went back to the classroom two years ago when I taught sixth grade. I was an assistant superintendent. I had run um, an educational nonprofit in California that had like 30,000 members. Administratively, I was at the peak of my uh, you know, pyramid, so to speak. And I decided that I wanted to go back to the classroom because my, my real love is pedagogy, teaching kids and teaching teachers how to teach kids. So I fired myself from that. I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do something else. I went back to the classroom. For the last two years, starting in September 20, 2021, I've been doing classroom demos. You guys, I've done 280 classrooms since last September. And I'm seeing really scary patterns in our classrooms. And by the way, this is this I've been to India and done this. I've been Mexico City, all throughout the United States, 280 classrooms. And this is what I'm seeing over and over again. I'm seeing direct instruction, followed by here's your worksheet, followed by I will grade it after the game on Sunday if you're lucky. And that's what I got all the way through school. Remember 1970. Listen to me talk, watch a video, answer the questions. I'll give you grading and feedback two days later, three days later, maybe never. So this is the edge protocols of yeah. Why, why do you think that is? That that's what's arisen well, and it hasn't changed in a hundred years of formal instruction. I read uh, any Bonnie Python fans in the group. I suspect there may be a couple. Uh, I read a really good book by Terry Jones. Terry Jones. Terry Jones. I think so. Terry Jones called The Barbarians. And in the book, he talks about how every sixth grade teacher on the planet tells people how the ancient Romans brought civilization to the barbarian. But if you do some real good research, they don't teach you about Vercingetorix, <laughs> the, the British queen who defied the Romans. They don't teach you that there were, there were barbarians that had more gold than the Romans. They don't teach you that the barbarians had a democratic government at the same time that the Romans had an empire. empire. And so it's a really interesting assertion he makes because he says, when we teach that the barbarians brought civilization to, uh, sorry, the Romans brought civilization to the barbarians, we are basically still telling the Roman PR story from AD 400. And I think in school, we've got the same kind of a problem. There was a guy named um, Horace Mann who won basically a come-to-market model where he beat out another guy uh, named John Dewey. And Horace Mann had gotten educated by the Prussian military system. He was very impressed. 
the Prussians had just militarized all of their schools because they had lost a war to France. Horace Mann brings this to the United States. He sells it to J.P. Morgan and Henry Ford because we need people who can work in factories. So the American high school was originally designed to develop people who can work in factories. And they need a high school education. And there's a book called The End of Average by um, Todd Rhodes that's spectacular at explaining this. So that was the long way around, but I'm going to finally answer your question. The machine was made to protect the machine. And so when you try to change the machine, the, machi the machine casts you out. So there's, that was going to be my answer. question. That was going to be my question because the creative process that you described earlier is yeah, endemic yeah. to human behavior. It's how children, Correct. you know, it's how we do a everything. toddler plays with the rattle to figure out what's going on with this rattle. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I've watched young people balance a spoon on the edge of their plate because they're working out where the balance is. And you yeah. look at this and you think they're just playing with their food, but they're doing experiments all the time. And that creative process then meets the administration of school. And I think the bias is to administer the school first and make sure the kids learn second. Is that what you're getting at? I would agree. I would agree. Basically, it's removing the children's humanity. I'm also a huge fan of John Taylor Gatto. We've got to make these kids be able to work when the bell rings and not care too much about their work and then quit when the bell rings. And that there's this long process. Or put another way, you guys. If you've ever taught sixth or seventh graders, many teachers will tell them, why don't you answer questions? Why are you so apathetic? They've been getting told for seven years, stop interrupting. <laughs> and so after seven years of the edu gulag, they say, I will comply. And then the adults say, why aren't you participating? And now the kids are not only frustrated, they're starting to get a little angry because you just told me you need answers. But when I talk, you get mad at me. Does, and, this and level, recent, does this create a level of mistrust? I believe, well, I don't know if it's mistrust is exactly the right word, but there is a, a, a gap, um, a safety gap even. People become uncomfortable with extending themselves. So that teachers would, would have to become it. performers or friends of the children or have an emotional connection to them to overcome this kind of... Uh, what we call this. I think uh, so. I, institutionalization. I, I, would stay, yeah. I would stay away from performer because you can't train somebody to become Robin Williams. Right. And part of the idea of edge protocols is that the, the, the pedagogical approach becomes the most important thing in the room, not the teacher. And in the Victorian model, your job is to listen to the teacher. I'm like an Aaron's nodding right now. Um, the, uh, Here's an experience that I recently had with first graders. I was demoing some, some math my way with first graders. At the end of the class, they all ran up and they brought me their papers. Look at mine. Look at mine. And the teacher started shooing them away. And I said, message from 20 years of sixth grade, never stop that instinct. I will look at every single one and I will reward their work because I know what this looks like when you tell them to stop never stop that instinct so yeah i'm loving the questions though um keep them coming i'm going to hop onto the next slide because here's what we do in edge protocol we immediately give the students work which sounds blasphemous 
we immediately, you guys, we have tools like Kahoot and Quizzes and Socrative and Nearpod. So in my world, what we do is we give them a question. And I will literally tell kids, I think you'll like this, Aaron. I tell them, if you don't know what a compound sentence is, you get your get out of jail free card is IDK. Just type in IDK. And I've had this happen multiple times. Nearly the whole class writes IDK. And Dave, to your point, it makes it a safe place to not know. Not knowing is safe. So I'll show them a couple of tricks, and now we get right into this. I, now I know that only 4% of my class knows what a compound sentence is. Would you guys like some help? I've just turned myself into a cheat code. <laughs> Here's a little direct instruction. Here's how you do it. And then guess what we do? Boom. We get right back in and go to work. And so this allows it to be a place where kids can experiment. We've literally, when I'm in this phase, I've literally had teachers watching the kids that I'm visiting. And they say, I watched the kid open up a new tab and type in and Google compound sentence. And when they see the definition, they close the tab and write IDK. <laughs> They're like, I'm out. So I show them how to search for Google images to define these things and they can do their own thing. This is so John, a really can I ask a question yeah. about that? Yeah, um, based on your your structure there, there, I'm my experience is primarily in the corporate instruction world. And there, mm -hmm. what we talk about a lot is micro learning and what your right. feedback response mechanism seems to me a lot like transforming an instructor-led classroom into uh, smaller chunks of micro-learning right. uh, at the front end of well, a lesson. Here's the corporate right? version of that. Here's the corporate version of that because I think, Aaron, are you a public teacher? We get this all the time. Here's your, here's your blood-borne pathogens quiz for this year to which everybody goes, oh, my God. There's three hours. I took that gone. quiz just a few weeks ago. <laughs> so in the edge protocols world, what would happen is there wouldn't be a PowerPoint. I would give you a Kahoot or a quizzes or a GIM kit, and I would just let you play it over and over again until you've got above a 90%. So I completely skip. I completely skip the I'm going to tell you part, and I go right to the details. And that's exactly how I do Latin roots and math facts and things like that. Yeah, John, great crossover because as bad as education can be sometimes, corporate training can be really, really distasteful, especially for people who get paid a lot of money to be smart, you know, to ask them to gear down to first grade and watch my slides for an hour or two is really insulting. And you just reminded me of a thing too, John, one of my former resource students, and if you're not into teaching resource means they have a a learning need. It doesn't necessarily mean they're learning disabled, but there's a there's a gap between their achievement and their skill. Um, he is now a trainer in the Marines, and guess what he's doing? I'm teaching him how to do all this stuff in the Marines, and they're eating it up because they're used to really Marine-style training, and that's and and everybody hates it, including the Marines. <laughs> um, another big thing that we used a lot is the Ebbinghaus effect. Are you guys familiar with the term, the Ebbinghaus effect? Look at his self-portrait. Like this, he's from the 1880s or 90s. We've known this for literally more than a century. But one of our big mo modes of teaching in Edge of Protocols is that we, we just assume that if you do something more than, so on the first round, you're at like 12% retention. Second round, you're at say 35, 40%. Third round, you're at maybe 60%. And on the fourth repetition, boom, we've got a class average. This is a class average of something like 80, 85%. 
But in teaching, we're so busy to move on. Aaron, can I get an amen? We got to get to the next thing. I don't have time. In teaching, we've got to move on. And so most kids are only getting two repetitions. Then we give them the test and they and we say, you guys didn't study. So we're going to retake the test, which takes more time than just doing it right the first time. Aaron, any thoughts on that segment? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the most transformative part of the um, the training that we did in July, I went to the July one in Laguna Beach, oh, was yeah. with Jacob Carr teaching mm-hmm. us Fast and Curious with... Um, with Dutch Latin verbs. Reference. Oh, Dutch verbs. Yeah. Dutch <laughs> verbs. And he asked us, does anybody know Dutch verbs? And nobody knew. And we played a gim kit or a blue kit a couple of times to get it right. He did a quick teach of the top like three or four that were incorrect the most. And then we did it again. And we were able to take in that learning And he got rid of the questions that we already knew the answers to because we saw it so many times, we understood it. So I think that repetition is fantastic. And I love that with Edge of Protocols. And again, I want to clarify, that's for low-level stuff. That's for just learning the terms. We're going to do other protocols. for. But Jacob and I worked this out last year, Aaron. I don't know if you told the story in the session. He gave his sophomores 116 Latin roots the first day of class. Now, in a normal setting with paper pen and writing sentences and all that, that's a Herculean task. But with Gimkit or Blookit or something like that, he had his kids through 116 Latin roots in five weeks, which means look how much time he picked up for the rest of the year. And I would even mention that I think this is an equity issue because now kids have equitable access to all of the content at the beginning of the year. And I learned this in India on a trip last year uh, to go super geeky on you guys. That's called ipsative learning. And ipsative learning has to do with learning from yourself. And the problem with the regular classroom model that Aaron and I were describing earlier is if I don't know how I did on the practice for three days, how do I get better? And so we're using the technology to give the kids the ability to see their feedback in some cases, like Aaron, you guys were probably in GimKit. You see the answer immediately after you miss the question, and you might get that question three or four times in a three-minute segment. It's a real game changer. And a shout out to Sunita Gandhi who showed me uh, ipsative learning when I was in India. Is this a thing teachers have sort of intrinsically learned to look for? Is a student in the group that doesn't seem to be seeing what's happening, and they? do a repetition or two just for that student? Well, that's what we call small groups, which has never worked, Aaron. Again, can I get an amen? We've been doing small groups at the kidney table since my cousins and I were in 1973. But the problem is using the same system with a smaller group is not going to yield results. So what will happen with a lot of these kids who have a learning deficiency is they get given, in some cases, Dave, a full-time adult human. Oh, I'm aware of that, but I guess I was thinking of a person who's just not had a good morning or whatever. They're normally a good student, and the teacher knows Oh, yeah. Well, that's the other cool thing. And they see it in the classroom. They see them sort of zooming out, and then they say, oh, I think I should stop and just focus on this one to wake them up or bring them into the discussion. And and in other cases, you've got the keeners who are always like this, and you're trying Mm -hmm. to balance it out. So it's more administrating the classroom than it is focusing on individual Yeah, in fact, I like to use this analogy. 
a lot of times teachers see themselves as George Clooney or Meryl Streep in a play. Who's going to have to carry the play? George Clooney. His, his responsibility is to entertain you and drag you through the story. I prefer more of a ringmaster type of model where I go like, hey, look at the clowns. Hey, the lion tamer's here. Look up. You'll see our trapeze artist. So I'm directing kids to activities. I am not making the activity go because of my persona. Uh, because, you know, the teacher's affect, you can't train people to have a better or worse affect. But what you can do is you can give them lesson frames that allow the kids to have the most important part. Or here's another example or analogy. If you've ever been to science camp or camp with kids, they can get 20-year-old kids to make my class work better than I do. That's a problem. <laughs> they have a format and a template that results in a high quality experience. Why is it that people with master's degrees and doctorates can't replicate the science camp experience? And it began, uh, it's, it's because our hypothesis is wrong. We're just trying to get kids to listen and do the worksheet. They don't want to do either thing. Thoughts on that, Erin? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went from like, so this year, for example, I've really taken the eight parts um, from Edge of Protocols, which for basically it's a template where they break down all eight parts of speech and the kids can look at a picture, usually a really funny picture and fill in all the nouns, the pronouns, everything. Whereas before I was going through nouns for a week and a half and then verbs for a week and a half. Now only really doing this for the past three months or so, because the first month was kind of getting to know them. Now, first of all, they're asking to do grammar. If I don't have it on the board for the schedule, they are mad. Incensed. <laughs> oh, and it got to the point where I, um, so it's only, we only have about 15 minutes between the time they come back from specials like art, gym, music and lunchtime. So they always ask now to do grammar and they are so excited about it. They are asking if we can, if they can make the pictures if they can share the pictures. So I've yeah. said, of course, email them to me. I'll make sure they're appropriate and then I can use them. No problem. Kids have even asked during the what I need time after recess, can I do another eight parts? Can I do another, another grammar? One. Yeah. And I I've said, actually seen, oh, of course. I've seen kids staple on a piece of paper so they can write a longer story. When's the last time you've had that? <laughs> oh, I... So for, I, I have a, a many students that need some supports in the classroom. So on the back of every eight parts template, I have a quick definition of all the parts of speech that they can look back and see some examples. And some kids are getting a little upset with me. They're like, can you just make the back blank? I understand it now. And I look at them yeah. and I'm like, are you serious? I don't, I'm yeah. not supposed to teach adverbs until January. And they're coming up with the most amazing adverbs. And they're writing every day. So instead of just like writing just, you know, um, subject pronoun, object pronoun, they're writing stories based on this. So every day they're writing. And the fact that kids are asking for it is incredible. Great. Uh, before we jump into what a protocol is, we have a few questions from our Mukana pan, uh, producers. Dave, what's our first question? Our first question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. He's asking, I think the phrase protocols is intimidating and pedagogical. 
is there a way of presenting this that is less daunting that can be understood right away? Thoughts uh, on that, John? Well, the, the first thing is we never really say edge of protocols to the student. Would you agree, Aaron? So the kid never has to process that. The, the actual activities have fun names like math reps and thin slides and thick slides and uh, random emoji power paragraph. So for the students, they see none of this. <laughs> this is all the magic behind the curtain. So I'm hoping that that person's question, and I'll be happy to do a follow-up, I'm hoping that they're thinking that that might be intimidating for the kids. What about for um, teachers? Do you ever have teachers who uh, are a little intimidated by it? Oh yeah, many many times. Um, it's and remember my my Terry Jones story at the beginning. Their mindset is built around this is how school works. So just like Aaron shared, when you tell them that they can do all eight parts of speech in one sitting, it's borderline blasphemy for them because the publishers and I'm going to quote Michael Fullen right now: the number one crisis in education is an over reliance on corporately published materials. I got, him, I got to hear him say that with my own ears and it blew my mind. So when you tell teachers that the publisher may not have the ideal plan, that it's an emotional moment for them because they have formed their identity as a teacher around executing the publisher's plan. And so when you tell them you can do all eight parts of speech in one sitting, they can't process that at first. And some people literally go through a low-level grieving process. But the, the thing I have that's my advantage on the conversation is they also intuitively know that the, what they're doing is not sustainable. And I've had multiple teachers that are 30-year teachers say, oh my God, I just tried this today. And I realized that I've been doing this incorrectly for 25 years. Paradoxically, most of our really heavy users have been teaching for over 20 years. I, I believe it's because they've tried everything and they're literally at the end of their rope. Thank you. What's our next question, Dave? Our next question comes from Dave Troutman on the panel. <laughs> Hi, He's Dave. from Education Edmonton, Canada. Uh, is there some level of difficulty with muscle memory for established teachers and instructors where they find it difficult to adapt to this method? Now, I think you addressed part of this already mm -hmm. for my question. And, and actually, Aaron, having just you know started adopting the method, then maybe there's some uh, explanation of how she had to overcome yeah. her own muscle give, memory to do that. I'm going to give it to Aaron first on that. Aaron, you take a crack at that first. Absolutely. So at first, um, looking through the books, you know, of course, before the training I went to, and then during it, I was trying to read up on all these new protocols that I could try in the classroom. And at first I was like, I'm going to do them all. I'm going to do them all right away. And then I said, you know what, take it a step back, do it a little bit at a time doing our smart start, doing a couple of things that are very basic and low cognitive load for the kids, and then building up to that content made it easier for me as well as the students. So, um, so for example, one of the exam the things I did in the first week of school was um, the Freyer model. So the Freyer model is the vocabulary word in the middle, and then there's four boxes around it, and it'll say, definition, write a sentence, um, give me an example and give me an, an antonym, an opposite for it. But instead we changed it to Freyer a friend. So it was put the student's name in the middle, put up, um, oh, I'm trying to remember now. What, what they, they like. like. 
things they don't like. Yep. And then one of my favorites is what's their dream pet? And if everybody says the dog I currently own, I go, guys, when I say dream pet, I want to see dragons. <laughs> Let's extend that thinking a little bit. Absolutely. So then from there, I was able to take that and then extend it to some things that we were doing in the classroom for content. So basically with every protocol that I've adopted, I started at a very low cognitive level. Um, I did Iron Chef with all my science students and it was all about them. So it's basically like they have to find a picture that represents themselves, three to five facts about themselves, and then a secret ingredient just like from the show. So every time I've done this, I with different classes, I'll throw in a different secret ingredient, which is just a question that is based on them. So I think I said, what is your most boring fact about yourself? That was the secret ingredient. And they loved it. From there, I then bumped it up a notch the next class. And I said, okay, here are all the SpongeBob characters. We're going to iron chef them. Here are all the characters. I'm going to give you certain slide numbers with the characters. Here's the website. You pull out three to five facts, put up a picture of your character. And then I want you to find um, a funny GIF about your character. And they love that. So then after that, I was able to say, okay, here are 12 different weather types, types of severe weather that we're learning in science. Take this and we're going to iron chef it. And they were so excited. So now every time the kids come into science, are we doing Fast and Curious with Blue Kit or are we doing Iron Chef? And I'm like, hmm, we might try a new one. So they know the names of them, but similar to the question before, we're not saying, oh, this is a protocol. We're saying this is an activity and this is what it's called. So at first- Aaron, why did I get up at seven this morning if you're going to do this good? (laughs) She's always this good. She's always this good. (laughs) But it's like- I think the thing for teachers is that you don't have to do them all right away. You pick the things that work for you that are based on things that you used to teach so that you're not reinventing the wheel and you're not going so far out of your box that of your thought process that you're confused, stay in your lane. Yeah. And that's that constant iterative piece, right? Constant iteration. Like, oh, hey, when we did Iron Chef this week, they could do three facts and they were flying. So next week I'm going to ask for four facts or I'm going to have them cite their source. And so you're adding a little bit. And Aaron, you did a perfect job of explaining that. Whenever we start a protocol, we do a low cognitive version, which ideally they wouldn't even need to look something up on the internet, right? Give me four facts about your pets or a pet you'd want. And we're teaching them the game because that's dual coding, right? That's that's your dual learning theory. You can't learn the content and the game at the same time. And um, it makes it a really easy handoff. Fantastic. What's our next question, Dave? Well, we have Paul Terry Walhouse again uh, asking, what is micro learning? That was something mentioned earlier. And uh, maybe a longer explanation of that is useful. Yeah, I can explain that. Um, it's a trend in the corporate world, especially the idea of breaking learning into um, smaller bite-sized segments, especially less than five to seven minutes long. And so instead of having everyone join a one-hour class, send out a uh, primer email, that's two or three minutes of reading with maybe a reflection question, send out a quick two to three minute long e-learning module or video with the instruction content, and then a few days later, send out a reminder or a some sort of assessment to make sure the learning was uh, integrated. And in the classroom, we call that chunking. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question, Dave. 
Well, I'm back again uh, asking actually about evaluation. Uh, what are the risks regarding evaluation of teacher performance when using this protocol? Uh, did you say risks or did you yeah. say, okay. Um, I, I called it risk because some people feel like their performance evaluation is almost more important than what they're teaching. Yeah, and Aaron, you're in the classroom right now, so you can critique my answer. Um, here's what happens with a lot of classroom observations in the K-12 realm. Um, if Dave's my principal, he sends me an email, hey, I'm going to observe next week. I immediately get on Google. I might go to Teachers Pay Teachers, and I start looking for a good lesson. And I dig around and I find a good lesson and I don't, I want it to be a surprise for the kids, but it's got to be doable because I want the kids to be excited and amazed and not bored because I want Dave to be impressed with how I manage the class. That is the cliche. Aaron and I do a pretty good. And then during the evaluation, everybody's super nervous because the kids are looking at me like, is this, is this what it's supposed to look like? Am I, am I doing it right? And I'm thinking, I, I hope this goes good because I've never done this before. And I'm very nervous. And then the principal's being very brave because he, he likes me as a person and as an educator. And he's like, well, John, there were a couple of weird parts, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a satisfactory. And everybody kind of leaves with that feeling. So what's great about, if I say Aaron, evaluation to next week, she's like, Iron Chef, you're going to be blown away. She doesn't have to do any special prep. She does the thing they do every week. And the kids operate at a high level of engagement. And she doesn't have to say things like, if you guys do a good job, we'll have a pizza party. Because the kids are intrinsically bought in to the learning. So that's that's my relatively quick answer. It makes evaluations remarkably easier. In fact, Dave, if you're a building administrator, you can literally do this. You can say, guys and gals, you can do an Iron Chef, a thick slide, a random emoji or a math rep. Pick any one of those four, I'll be happy. And think about it. Knowing what your evaluator is looking for is a pretty good feeling as opposed to hoping to demonstrate it. Awesome. Let's jump back to you, John, and talk about what an actual edu protocol is. Good. I think we're doing good with this. Okay. So what is an edu protocol? Um, I like to use the analogy of a Venn diagram. If I can get the slides back up. Um, a Venn diagram is basically a simplistic edge protocol. What grade level can we use this in? Nearly every. What subject area? Nearly every. And how many times to master? I love this. This came out a year or two ago on the 186th birthday of Venn diagrams. This is a Venn diagram of Venn diagrams. So it's something that could be universally tinkered with, toyed with. It's never perfectly mastered. It's open-ended. And so here's a couple of quick examples for you guys. If you're familiar with the good old KWL, what do I know? What do I want to learn? And what did I learn? I quit doing those within two months of being out of teacher school because I realized it was 20 minutes of our lives gone with no definable learning. So our version of that is called thin slides. And I think you'll really like this, John, in a corporate environment. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands. I'm not going to popsicle stick them. I'm not going to draw a poker chip. I just set up a slide deck that's shared, and I go like this. Here's a word. Hepatitis B. Go. Everybody puts one picture and one word, and we're done in three minutes. Then everybody shares. And I'm very careful to not say present, because kids and adults freak out when you say present. 
So in five minutes, Dave, we can go from knowing nothing about hepatitis B or bloodborne pathogens to everybody has made a slide and everybody has shared. So I can judge how well this conversation is going and the kids leave having done, everybody's produced something. And there's here's a little exemplar on the side. So this teacher has second graders doing thin slides for their sight words. And, and I know it's wordy, but listen to this. So this girl has a love of dogs and every week she uses dogs to show me her knowledge, knowledge of words. I keep waiting for it to get old and she turns in an even better one and cracks me up. By the way, this teacher's been off on home hospital because she had broken her ankle. She's been out of the classroom for two months, but she's still interacting with the teacher, uh, the students like this and with the sub. So thin slides is a very simplistic iteration. If I'm teaching math, I go like this. Supplementary angles, you guys have three minutes. Make a slide and then tell me some observations. Now you can geek this up a little bit with the older kids. You can say, make a claim about what you found. You can tell me evidence of what you think is there. Or you can say your reasoning for picking the image you did. So I'm just folding in CER all the time. Um, another classic one is the, the think-pair-share. You guys have heard of think-pair-share, I'm sure. And uh, what happens at the end of the think-pair-share is I, I call on Harshid, and he gives me a, a pretty good answer, and I roll with it. And I call on Mark Giuliani, and he gives me a pretty good answer. And then I call on Chris, Chris Clark, the silent one, and you know what he says? They took mine. And the conversation is now over. <laughs> so our version of that is called a cyber sandwich and it's a pretty straight ahead thing it goes like this we give the kids something to read usually um, they could also see a video or powerpoint we give the students something to consider on slide one harshid is taking notes in any format i want i could just say harshid can you give me four important facts it can be that general or i could say i need two people that are important uh, define these vocabularies. I can make the note taken whatever I want. Meanwhile, on slide two, Chris Clark is doing the exact same thing. On slide three, they build a Venn diagram together. So once they get to slide three, they can talk all they want. After all the Venn diagrams are completed, then I do a Socratic seminar. I'm going to let the kids get out there and run a little bit before I mansplain them. Uh, also called correctile dysfunction. Uh, I'm going to let them get out and get their hands on the content, take some notes. We're going to clear up misconceptions they might have um, on their Venn diagrams or things they may have glossed over. And then we write a quick paragraph to wrap it up. So it's about a 10 minute read a note, 10 minute discussion, 10 minute write, 30 minute lesson. And here's the cool part. And I think Aaron's probably done this one. If I want to do this again tomorrow, all I have to do is change the link we're reading and I'm done. So the prep is literally flick of my wrist. And if I teach three or four periods of bio and two or three periods of chem, we are going to do the same activity in both classes. I just changed the reading artifact. And you'll see here, this I think is a fourth grade classroom or fifth grade. We did it. We cyber sandwiched and it was amazing. If you told me we were hitting four standards, I would call you crazy. So that's the good old cyber sandwich, another one of our classics. Um, this is Can probably I, uh, the, interrupt you there. Yeah, jump right uh, in. I think that's also a really helpful activity to do in a corporate setting, not just for corporate mm -hmm. training, but in oh, meetings. Yeah. And it, it really yeah. brings out those people who otherwise feel uh, embarrassed or are more introspective, gives them an opportunity to think or Or the ones, who are, just or, yeah, the ones who are waiting to engage all the time, right? So it's a 
it's a clear framework to collaborate. And I'm sorry, I cut you off, John, but I wanted to. Yeah, I was just that. saying, I think you can use it in more than just an education setting. And Oh, yeah. So here's an example. Um, let's say that your bank has a staff meeting and you want to teach your staff members about Bitcoin. That should be important for bankers. And you, you put a photocopy in the mail to them, but they don't read it before the meeting because they're humans. And um, when you get to the meeting, they don't know anything what you're talking about. So you feel like you're going to do a 40-minute PowerPoint, and then they all leave snickering because you're not a good presenter. Cyber Sandwich fixes all that. You go like this, guys, here's a two-page article. Let's go. And now you're walking around in my ringmaster mode, right? You're walking around going, hey, Dave, how was your weekend? Good job. How do you like this article? Pretty cool. Mark, I, want you to ask, I wanted to ask you about this part. I can interact with the kids while they're working because I'm out of that George Clooney, Meryl Streep phase. And great, but great observation, John, definitely. Um, this is the next one that I wanted to share of our basic ones. This is the random emoji power paragraph. And if you guys see there, I've got the little hamburger. Um, Aaron, do your kids write paragraphs that sound like this? I'm going to tell you about mitosis. Firstly, secondly, thirdly, I hope you like my paragraph in which I get my red pen and write, I do not like this paragraph. <laughs> so we do a thing called the random emoji power paragraph. And what we do, I'm going to switch over here. We give kids, watch this, you guys. And this is our free website. Um, we give kids five random emoji. And so we say, this one's going to be your main idea. I had to wake up early to be on this Zoom webinar today. And I felt very alienated at the beginning because I didn't know Dave or Mark or Harshid yet. But now I think I'm falling in love with Aaron's pedagogical practices, and I didn't even know her today. And I feel like we're going to just be tearing things up like the fire department, getting new ideas shared. And if anybody doesn't want to listen, they're making a big mistake. So we have the kids build these random emoji sentences, one sentence at a time, one emoji at a time. And the link for that is eduprotocols.com slash class. It's in the slides. But basically, look at what this teacher said. Time for a little random emoji paragraph. You guys, look how much the students wrote. <laughs> Student yells, I love writing. And then other student in disbelief, this is writing? So that's like pretty classic. And the idea there is that I can get kids to do about four of these in a half an hour. Now, in a classic English class in high school right now, they're happy for kids to do five paragraphs in a week. My kids are going to be doing three or four a day with immediate feedback. So your growth curve just explodes. And then the last one for the sample protocols here is the Iron Chef, which if you guys are familiar with the good old jigsaw model, and John Snyder, I'm going to beat you to the punch on this one. This one's awesome for corporate settings. In an Iron Chef, you put four or five kids in a group. And each student has a different portion of the article or subject. So in Aaron's world, every kid might have, one kid might have mitosis, one kid might have anadiplosis. Uh, I mixed up my, my, uh, my language arts and my science there. Uh, Mitosis, you could have anaphase, prophase, you could have all the different phases. You could have different major muscle groups. You could have different literary devices. And so in an Iron Chef, what happens is the team gets 10 minutes to each make one slide. So in 10 minutes, they all make a slide and they have a certain number of tasks on each slide. And that was the one Aaron was describing before. And at the end of that, each group gets two minutes to share 
with their findings. So dig this, you guys. I can go from zero to four literary devices in under a half an hour. And here's the best part. I'm doing almost none of the work. I'm just walking around making sure the kids are doing the work. So edge protocols are really based on these four main ways to learn. I don't know if you guys have ever seen all four R's in one place, but we have repetition, doing the same task over and over. Okay, so that's like math facts. We have recursion. Uh, I've heard recursion being compared to like learning how to drive a stick shift. It's still memory, but you're memorizing a process. You have to do all the things. You've got retrieval, which is has to do with repetitions because I'm doing things over and over again until they become automated. And then good old reciprocal, where I'm teaching to the other kids. Do you see how if I do an Iron Chef every Wednesday, we're cooking with four R's every Wednesday because it's an Iron Chef. We know we do the Iron Chef process. We're retrieving our information skills from previous units and from previous experiences. And the kids are advocating to each other about the comment, uh, the content. And it was great. One day I had uh, some high school English kids and the group that went first was uh, doing wrong word usage. And they were very thrilled with wrong word usage. They had a lot of fun with there and there and where and where and you know, all those kinds of things. The group that went immediately after them was missing coma. And you should have seen the wrong word group going crazy. And they're like, no, no, because they had written missing coma instead of missing comma. So the wrong word team was like, it's the wrong word. And they're, they keep looking up at it and they can't see it. They're like, yeah, comma. And they're like, no, wrong word. It was awesome. And those guys, those kids will never forget that. And a couple more little geeky things and then we'll, we'll take a run through the protocols a little deeper. I love Rosenstein's principles. Have you guys seen much of Rosenstein? He did his work in the early 80s, and he's very big in the UK, but almost unheard of in the US. So just jump in real quick. Is this How Brock Rosenstein? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, From Temple? Think, uh, did, no, this or... guy was up at, this guy was up in Illinois. Oh, different guy. So, yeah, so here's what I love about this, though, you guys. I love this right here. This is in the er early 80s. This side of the chart, let me color that arrow in a little better. This side of the chart is all of the brain science of what a classroom needs. This side of the chart is all of the classroom practices. And I just love the little web because when I looked at it, I was like, oh my God, that's what my brain is doing when I'm teaching. I'm thinking about uh, retrieval practice. Did we do a fast and curious on this? How are they doing? I'm thinking about spacing. We'll do an Iron Chef every Wednesday. I'm thinking about interleaving. Um, I might have two different groups working on two different subjects on a cyber sandwich. Avoiding the overloading the students with cognitive load. So like Aaron was talking about, we do some practice reps before we go live. And it's just a really powerful chart. But my favorite thing that I found on this that was new was number seven over here obtain a high success rate. And Rosenstein says, you should not move on until the class average is 80% or higher, which is nearly impossible in the classic pedagogical approach. But Aaron, I'm going to defer back to you. How easy is this in protocols? Oh, incredibly easy. Incredibly easy. Like even just 
I go back to eight parts because that's the one that my kids are obsessed with. They're now leaps and bounds ahead of where my last year's plan book was in terms of grammar. The only things they're a little stuck on are things like interjections and um, conjunctions, but that's a quick five minute teach and then they go off and they continue. It's fantastic. And then if you haven't yet, then you're ready to move on to sentence parts. Now, remember my little graphic I shared at the beginning, the creative process, there's actually a technical name for that. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect starts like this. Your conviction is inverse to your knowledge. So um, I always think about it this way. When your friend says something like, hey, let's build a tree fort, the planning phase is really cool. But then you get down to the insecure canyon. All right, you're starting on the child's hill. You don't realize. And then the insecure canyon is, oh my God, we've never built anything. So I have no idea how to make a trap door or drive a nail or saw or do anything. And then as you go through the repetitions, you move up on the scale. But this is, again, this is the Dunning-Kruger effect is what I'm trying to recreate in my classroom all the time, like three or four times a day. I'm taking kids through elements of this part. And then the other one that I have to master as a classroom teacher is Parkinson's Law. I don't know if you've heard of Parkinson's Law. Our shorthand for it is called the suck because it's your time going away. But basically it says, if I assign an essay to seventh graders that's due next Wednesday, when are they going to actually do it? And the answer in every country I've ever worked in is Tuesday night. Late Tuesday night. (laughs) Yeah, Tuesday night. In some cases, on the bus, Thursday morning <laughs> or Wednesday morning. So I'm very, I'm very, very cognizant of timeframes and protocols, and I think you can agree on that, Aaron. So we do this for seven minutes, we do it for nine minutes, we do it for twelve minutes. It's okay on the first day if it's not super high quality because we're going to do it again tomorrow faster, and we can move through the content. It's a really cool process. Great. So, uh, John, we are r- r- quickly running out of time, and we have a few no more worries. questions in the chat. If we can address those, we want to make sure our producers' questions have an opportunity to be answered. Dave, what's our next one? Our next one is from Paul Terry Walhus in Austin, Texas. He's asking, how do you recommend your students filter and structure their YouTube learning experience? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. We actually have a protocol for that. There's a couple of protocols you can use for that. You could iron chef it. So give the kids a five minute video and each student is responsible for a section of the video and they have to take notes and they have to put a visual representation. And like Aaron mentioned, they have to put a secret ingredient because that's what makes it a party. Um, So for example, if we were doing something on the French Revolution, I would say you need uh, these, you know, you need to hit four facts and then you need to have a primary source-based picture. And then your secret ingredient in this one has to be a quote about the French Revolution, not by Marie Antoinette, because I already know that let them eat cake one. There's another one we do called thick slides. Remember earlier I talked about thin slides, one picture, one word. A thick slide, and I'll bring up an image of this while I'm talking uh, that we can show. Um, a thick slide is basically deconstructed note-taking. Have you tried thick slides yet, Aaron? Not yet. That'll be one we're going to start in January. Okay, so a thick slide is a deconstructed paragraph. I'm going to show you guys one right here. Where is it? There we go. This is the original thick slide from 2002. 
if you guys want to put my screen up. So in a thick slide, what we have is a title, a subtitle. We have two pictures. We have a student-generated caption on each. And then we have one, two, three, four facts there where it says the rules. We make a little comparison, which I tell the kids. It's not a full Venn diagram. We don't have time for a full Venn. And then we have a first and third person quote. Now, as you guys are looking at this, here's what I would tell you. A sixth grader made this in 2002 on a 400 megahertz IBM laptop on Windows 95. <laughs> and um, this is what I teach my kids to do with a high level of accuracy on text or video. And check it out. Here's the best part, Aaron, when you get into this. We could do one of these on Monday, one of these on Tuesday, one of these on Wednesday, one of these on Thursday. I'm going to give the kids the structure. Find a video about Caesar's political history. Find a video about Ro the Colosseum. Find a, a video about the Roman Senate. They're going to gather notes this way. And then, Aaron, we have more than enough notes to write our five-paragraph essay. And we just slide right through it. So hopefully that answers that question okay. Yeah, what's the next question? Those are Dave? just two strategies. Our next one comes from Harshid on the panel here. He's from Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, could you share your thoughts about accessibility? You mentioned the story about India. I'm sure there were some differences towards receiving accessibility and needs. Well, my favorite story in India was I had um, this group of primary teachers and as you know, in, in a lot of times in primary classes, right, TK, K, 1, there is a struggle with the teachers about what's developmentally appropriate. But my, my story about India was when I, uh, when I came to visit, they said, our students used to walk into class like this. Okay, when is lunch? And now they walk in and they say, where's the link? <laughs> so they were really excited to see the difference with the kids there. Um, Harshid, can you clarify for me, when you say accessibility, do you more mean more like content skill-wise, or do you mean more like um, readability, uh, text-to-speech, things like that? I would say that it's kind of represented in, in two fashions. So I'm visually impaired myself, and mm -hmm. on top of it, with language, when we translate language or, for example, American Sign Language, how is it used in a platform like this when we are doing meetings and such, and how to include the, the, the child in the protocol lessons, let's just say, if we're using that plat uh, as an ad idea, and um, for accessibility needs is how to convey these same processes as we as we mentioned from the iron chef idea to take the four different parts and how to make that more inclusive and your background with let's say uh the classroom and google and such so i just was quite curious about that so i've got a that would be a whole other show um but i'd give you a couple of examples if you've heard of nearpod for example in nearpod I can go through and I make a set of slides and I can put the text. If I have students with those kinds of needs, I can put the text in there. And when I do that and I send the slides out in Nearpod, the students automatically get um, enhanced text features. So they can just push a button and it'll read it to them. It'll add pictures of key vocabulary. And in Nearpod on their Iron Chef submission, there's a little red button where they can push that and they can talk their submission 
So that's just like a quick, easy pivot. Um, I love tools like for a cyber sandwich. I love tools like CommonLit. If you haven't seen commonlit.org, it has 120 languages for all of their lessons, and it'll read to you in those languages. So how about an how about an ASL kid who is non-English? It'll take care of that kind of stuff as well. So the technology really supports this because kids can access things like text to speech. I have a friend. Do you know? Oh my gosh, I'm going to forget his name. Luis. He's an uh, he's an Apple Distinguished Educator down in Florida, and he is a legally blind film teacher, and he teaches the kids that everybody uses all the accessibility features on this. How many people have changed the font size? How many people use speech to text? And so I love that idea of subtly in, involving those things. Um, I think the accessibility, um, another great one is for like the fast and curious Aaron was talking about, quizzes for primary students and for vision impaired students, it will read the questions and the answers to you, which is super powerful. So uh, really, I don't think that you need a lot of modifications. You just need to be aware of what the students' needs are because now the universal access in Chrome and in Mac OS is so – it's persistent throughout the whole platform. You just have to move it over. And then I would add lastly, um, here's an analogy. Um, it's not necessarily a special needs thing, but I started telling my kids that I'm going to teach them grammar, Okay. But when they submit their paper, they need to run it through Grammarly because I'm not correcting grammar on essays. On essays, I'm correcting thoughts and concepts. And because I use grammar and I'm 58 years old, so that is a life skill. So I want them using those tools, even if their learning difficulty is just being bad at grammar. One of the best presents I can give them is to be good at grammar and Grammarly and tools like that help boost that. So hopefully that helps them. Um, yes, this is Harshid again, and that definitely helps. And I appreciate the mentions of the common lit and other tools that are out there, because I don't think some of these tools get mentioned, and especially in the education space and in the corporate environment, we could you know go back to these tools like GIMP and some of these other things that I've heard it's kind of the first to me for today so you know it gives me good research to go look that stuff up and uh, appreciate the answers and really quickly Aaron um, how, what's your classroom use how's that helped with um, students with accessibility so I use uh, Google Slides because that's what my school district uses and a lot of the times my students are able to use the text-to-speech or in things like Bluekit, they actually have an audio feature now where I can read record myself reading um, the question and all the answers. So all my students, um, I have many IEPs, um, ELL students, we all do in our classrooms. And all of my kids have been able to access that with all the different tools that Google gives, um, Nearpod gives, and other websites that we use. Or if I could say it the inverse way, if you're only expecting kids to write essays on paper, Harshid, I cannot answer your question. And if you're only expecting kids to write five-paragraph essay in Google Docs and Times New Roman, black font only, I can't answer your question. <laughs> if you're willing to look at the bigger picture of how you use your own cell phone to get through the day, all of a sudden, this whole universe of options opens up. And I work with primary students who in some ways are learning disabled, right? They don't know how to type yet. They don't know how to spell. 
And they're sitting there working in silence when I visit. And I say, why aren't you helping each other? And they go, that's cheating. I go, it's not a test. We're practicing. And it's amazing because the chatter speeds up and so does the scoring. And so my logic is if we can score high Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then Friday we can be quiet on the test, but we will have quality reps in. And it's just amazing to see the difference of the energy in the classroom. In fact, to your point as well, I did this yesterday. I will take uh, one-to-one classrooms and I'll say three kids close your laptops and then we'll play around of GimKit or Blokit together three or four kids around one computer. You should hear them talking. No, that's 14. That's 17. That's 24. Eight times three. Come on, you guys. And now they're talking and and sharing with each other, which again, for the practice rounds is super beneficial. There's no need to hide the answers from the kids in the practice rounds. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us today and sharing your insights about Edu Protocols. Thank you, panel, for lending your expertise and helping guide the conversation along. Um, to give everyone an idea, the questions that we answered today, if we had driven from location to location, would have been 26,377 physical miles or a bit more than 238 million bananas. Uh, one key takeaway for me is that uh, there's lots of different ways to use Edu protocols, including for all ages. And I hope that we can have you back sometime in the future, John. Every day we learn something new at Office Hours. Um, want to say special thanks to our producers for asking our questions. Uh, special thanks to our back-end crew, especially Peter Belbin is training as technical director and Ken Jones training as question manager. If you're interested in training and learning more about how to be on the back end of Office Hours, sign up on our daily email. There's roles throughout the week as well as uh, during Office Hours proper that you can sign up for. Uh, we couldn't do it without everyone involved in this process, and you'll see everyone involved as we roll our credits. Thanks, and have a great week. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Aaron. Yes. Don't be a stranger. Uh, I like where you're at. You're kicking butt. Uh, it looks like that we're going to have another academy next summer at Notre Dame. So be on the lookout for that. Okie dokie. Will do. And I'll the be at Notre the Dame. seminar next weekend too. Oh, yay. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody. We'll see you later. Sounds great. Have a great week, all. You too. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Have a great weekend, great. everybody. Yes. You guys did well. Thanks for the good questions, Dave and Harshid in particular. Uh, absolutely. No problem. You have a good afternoon. I'm going to. That's the plan.